Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Just a quick note that today's episode is going to be a rerun. The next season of the Psychology Podcast will begin later this year. I haven't taken any break in five years of doing this podcast, so I thought it was about time to take a step back and think about how I can make this a better experience for you all. Until then, enjoy these episodes from our archives. Today, it's my great pleasure to have the great Daryl Treffer on the show. Daryl is a psychiatrist who specializes in the development of autism spectrum disorders and savant syndrome. He is on the staff at St. Agnes Hospital and serves on the board of trustees of Marianne University. Treffert was a consultant to the movie Rain Man, and his latest book is Islands of Genius, The Bountiful Mind of the Autistic Acquired and uh, Sudden Savant. Thank you, Daryl, for talking to me today. My pleasure to be here. Uh, as you know, I'm a longtime uh, fan, <laughs> I guess you could say, of your work, and, uh, and hopefully uh, you'd consider me a colleague as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, why did you, I want to ask you why you called your book Islands of Genius. Well, it, when I met my first savant, which was way back in 1962, um, I was simply um, astounded, frankly, by um, these, uh, these, these first savants were kids on a children's unit some of whom were severely disabled and yet had these islands of intactness or islands of genius that stood in such contrast to overall handicap that it just seemed to me that the, the term island of, of genius was appropriate for these uh, spectacular abilities in a sea of disability. Right. So there was just such a huge um, difference, striking contrast between um, what they seemed to be um, 
having difficulties doing in life and um, and their their skill set uh, and a, and a different skill set that they seem to be very extraordinary. Um, right. Yeah. Some of them were actually mute and had no language whatsoever. Oh, and, wow. Um, uh, and yet uh, had uh, some spectacular ability, and it just uh, struck me that what does this say about human potential overall? Well, yeah. now with the iPad uh, yeah. and the uh, the talking tablet, we're finding that uh, these kids who are mute and have no expressive uh, language are able to communicate with the uh, with, a, with with the uh, talking tablet, and some of them at a frankly, uh, an astonishing level. Right, right. And I, I remember seeing a, um, a very touching uh, video clip. Um, I can't remember if it was Leslie Lemke or not. It was, it was um, an autistic savant who was uh, blind. Um, he picked up the music very easily, and he didn't talk, but he started singing one day. You know, he was playing music, and his, uh, his caretaker was just, like, amazed, absolutely amazed. Right, and that's true. That uh, Leslie, um, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, he he talks somewhat. A lot of it is echolalic, and it's hard to carry on a conversation. But he will uh, uh, sing any tune that he's heard. And and as a musical savant, it's a little unusual to find um, someone who is a pianist but also singing. And uh, Leslie does both. Right. So I want to ask you a question because you were the scientific advisor to the movie Rain Man. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about um, the main character uh, in, that, um, in that movie. Um, what, to what extent was Raymond Babbitt uh, based on a real character? Well, the, the film was inspired by Kim Peek, um, who is a, uh, what I call the Mount Everest of memory. He simply is the, has the most phenomenal memory of any savant I've ever it turns out quite by by accident that Barry Morrow, who had written um, uh, two made-for-television uh, programs in the past uh, about uh, called Bill about when Mickey Rooney was playing someone who was cognitively disabled, they just happened to be in the same room at the same time at this convention, and Barry Morrow was simply struck by Kim Peek's memory. They they happened to be in a library room, and they, he was pulling books out and 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 quizzing um, Kim about about them. And so he, on the way back, on the plane back to California, he wrote down autistic savant, and then he he went about uh, writing the the uh, script for for the movie Rain Man, inspired by Kim Peek. But the Raymond Babbitt is a composite savant. Uh, it's not the story of Kim Peek. Right. Uh, and uh, all the scenes that you see in the movie are based on real life savants. The toothpick scene, uh, the um, uh, memorizing um, of the phone book, uh, the computing um, uh, uh, mathematical equations, but not knowing the difference between a candy bar and a, a sports car. Uh, all of those are, are real life scenes. But Raymond Babbitt is a composite savant rather than the story of Kim Peek. Right, right. So that's very interesting. So I want to I want to tease tease apart a couple of things here, um, and that's the difference between autism and savantism. Um, am I correct in saying they're not the same thing and they're not always co-occurring? Uh, 
Yes, that's right. Could you define um, each? Would you mind defining each first? Sure. Savant syndrome is a is a is a remarkable but rare condition in which a a person has some underlying developmental disability or other brain disorder uh, who has some spectacular island of genius that stands in stark contrast to overall handicap. So savant syndrome by definition means that somebody has an underlying disability and the savant ability is grafted onto that underlying disability. Now, about 70% of the time, uh, savants have autism as the underlying disability, but the other uh, 30% have some other uh, condition. It could be a traumatic brain injury, could be uh, dementia, uh, could be cognitive disability. So, so that um, uh, not all savants are autistic, and not all autistic persons are savants. And I think one of the things that people come away from the movie saying, oh, I know what an autistic savant is, and they assume that all autistic savants or all autistic persons have the abilities of Raymond Babbitt, and that's not true. About one out of 10 persons with autism does have some savant ability, but means nine out of 10 do not. So interesting, and I, I just wonder like, what um, what kind of traits or characteristics of autism um, can facilitate savant skills? Because I mean, it's I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, that most savant skills, um, may, virtually all of them, are nonverbal in the nonverbal domain. Is that right? Uh, uh, most mostly, there are some um, polyglot savants who do have language um, uh, abilities uh, where that where the ability to uh, speak or or to, to interpret languages are uh, is the ability but that's that's really quite rare right so maybe some of these kind of characteristics of autism like attention to detail um, uh, interest in visual spatial reasoning these sorts of things might be conducive to extraordinary um, uh, skill in some Absolutely. Area. Right. I think those that you mentioned, uh, attention to detail, um, the uh, uh, ability to um, to organize and 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 um, and, and, and to memorize uh, uh, massive memory or extraordinary memory is, is shared as well. And the ability to uh, to focus on detail rather than, than than the big picture is certainly a part of autism. And uh, it turns out, as I said, about one in 10 persons with autism has savant abilities, but it's about one in 1,400 persons with other brain disorders underlying have savant abilities. So it's, it, it's much more common in autism, and, and people are trying to find out why, what is that? What is the connection? Um, why is it one out of 10 autistic persons and one out of 1,400 others? Let me flip the let me flip the script for one second here. So there are a lot of things that non savants is what some people call neurotypical individuals are really good at, but we don't make a big deal out of it because it's just it's just a normally developing thing. So for instance, like most people's social skills, probably a savant looks at those social skills and thinks think they're a savant. So, you know, like so, like savants probably look at non savants and say, "Wow, you're a savant in social skills." Yeah. So I mean, it it, it, so it seems to me like. Um, you know, if you spend so much time d 
developing one area to the exclusion of other areas, you can become really good in that area, you know, and uh, like savants show up and I don't think, and we're going to get to this later. It's not all practice by any means. Um, but, you know, this is sort of attention to detail. There's sort of like, you know, you see in the savant interests that they're not, they don't seem to be as interested in some things that, that, um, so that most quote neurotypical people are interested in. Um, would you say that's correct? Yeah, that that's, that's certainly true that they're, their interests narrow often to uh, several areas, and they do spend an awful lot of time uh, in in those areas uh, at the expense, frankly, of of other things that uh, that most of us spend our time with. So, what do you think of the proposed uh, DSM five changes, um, or not the proposed, the ones that are actually in the new DSM um, in regards to autism? I know there's been some controversy surrounding that. Well, I think we. <clears throat> Um, I think there's some good news and bad news. Um, um, I think the uh, the good news is that uh, there's some attempt to separate communication disorders out from autism uh, because there are some uh, 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 children with with uh, hyperlexia, particularly uh, that uh, <clears throat> are are often diagnosed mistakenly as autistic. Um, uh, because of their preoccupation with numbers and, and, and letters and so forth. So I think um, there, there, there's been a, a, some lack of clarity between uh, communication disorders and, and children with autism. So I think separating out some of the communicative disorders is a good thing. Uh, I, I think increasingly, though, the, the, the DSM um, tends to keep diluting um, autism and, and expanding the definition. Uh, I, I still go back to Leo Kanner's original uh, description of early infantile autism, which, in which he described uh, all of the characteristics of, of, of that condition. And it was fairly narrow in, in terms of its um, uh, who would qualify. And we keep expanding that. and, and to where I think autism has lost its specificity. So that's an interesting thing, that interesting point. You said specificity. So there, in even within the savant domain, you go to great pains to differentiate between different kinds of savants to kind of get at that more granular level, uh, granular right. level, right? So you um, could you maybe outline some of these different um, types of savants and and why you think it's important to differentiate between them, why it matters. Well, I think um, in my experience, at least, I divide savants into 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 three uh, three groups, and admittedly, these are subjective at this point, and we need to come down with you know. I'd like to uh, create some specific um, rationale and, and criteria, but at this point, um, the first level are splitter skills and uh, autistic. Uh, children or adults many times will have um, a preoccupation with uh, uh, one one thing or another. Maybe calendar calculating. It may be remembering birthdays, uh, license plates, other kinds of uh, trivia. And they sort of uh, people marvel at their ability to know everybody's birthday and remember everybody's birthday. When there's a family reunion, they go around and tell everybody, remember when their birthday was. Those are called splinter skills, and they do occur in in persons with autism. 
The second level is something I call talented level. And this is where a skill becomes even more conspicuous and generally a single skill like music or art. And it's uh, conspicuous, not just uh, in relationship to the disability, but in the the peer group in general uh, is uh, higher than you would find even in neurotypical youngsters. And then there's a third category called prodigious savants. And these are, uh, it's a high threshold uh, level. Uh, and if these persons did not have a disability, we'd, we would call them a prodigy or genius. And uh, I used to say there were 25 such people in the world. I'm up to about 100 now. And there's oh, probably wow. probably many more than we don't, than we don't know about. But um, uh, what are some of the things these people can do? Can you give people concrete examples? Um, well, uh, Kim Peek, certainly, uh, with his uh, memory, uh, he had memorized several thousand books. And by memorize, I'm talking about uh, with page numbers <laughs> included. Oh, I could do and, that for breakfast. Are you kidding me? Uh, That's nothing. Of course, I know. Probably more than several thousand, probably. Um, and so his uh, his his memory um, uh, was uh, uh, was phenomenal. Um, uh, Leslie Lemke um, uh, is able to uh, play back any song that he hears um, with a single hearing and has this repertoire, which is endless. Uh, if he's heard the piece and you, and you remember how he coded it when he put it into his memory bank, uh, mm-hmm. uh, he can pull that out. But, but he also... Um, uh, at one of the concerts in Texas, instead of having him play the uh, the piece back that the person had played, we said, Leslie, we want you to play this with the person. And and so he waited about, this person started a song he had never heard before, waited about three seconds, and then he began to play back what he had just heard, processed it, and was outputting it in his parallel processing uh, with an I measured IQ of uh, 58, I think so. Wow. Uh, and, and Stephen Wiltshire um, can uh, go by a, a helicopter over Manhattan uh, for 45 minutes, and then spend the next three days drawing um, what what he saw uh, window by window and building by building. And if you want to superimpose a digital photograph on what he saw on the helicopter, it's exactly the same. Um, uh, so there are, uh, and uh, there are other artists uh, who uh, have that, um, have ability uh, to, to recreate with such fidelity that um, uh, after a single uh, viewing, and, and unlike many other artists, they don't keep going back to the, to the photograph or to whatever they're uh, drawing and it, it's a single image and that's there you know permanently what do you think's going on there from like a biological neurological perspective do you think you, you you see minimal practice is that right minimal deliberate practice to get to that level what do you think's going on there i i know we have kind of different uh or, or, or complementary but somewhat different theories about the um, origins of those things maybe um let's hear you let's hear what what your thoughts are on that well, I think there's there, there's two things that seem to be going on with with savants and uh, at, at any of these these three levels. Um, the first is that there is some 
um, brain damage, uh, often in the right hemisphere, but not always. Um, uh, I'm sorry, in the left hemisphere. Uh, and um, uh, and then there is a, a, re a recruitment of some still intact uh, cortical tissue, undamaged cortical tissue. There is a rewiring to that area and then the release of dormant potential within that area is what i call the three r's so there's uh, there's brain damage in one area and then um, a recruitment of still intact um, often right hemisphere ability but at the same time and probably by the same uh, factor uh, there is a damage to the uh, higher level memory circuits so-called cognitive or semantic memory with a, a reliance on more procedural or lower level uh, um, uh, cortical striatal memory instead of cortical limbic memory. So what you see in the savant is often our right brain skills coupled with this procedural or habit memory, which is very, but very, very narrow. Well, that's just, that, that dovetails so nicely actually with, um, with some of my work on implicit learning um the work uh you know we know that striatum is is related to the ability to non-consciously um soak up patterns right. um yeah so and i and my whole dissertation was on individual differences in implicit learning do people differ in this ability i found they do and it's independent of iq mm -hmm. so i yeah so actually I, that, that's interesting yeah yeah, yeah now I, I think of it <laughs> there's a yeah no it's a really a I, in, in my book on Gifted, I write a lot about your theory and then talk about implicit learning as uh, playing a possible uh, role there. Um, but th it still begs the question, like, how much of that is, um, you know, or maybe some people are kind of like wired in a certain way that, uh, that um, allows for this implicit learning to happen more automatically than others. Yes. Yeah. That's possible. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. Uh, and I think that, uh, that, there is that difference even in in neurotypical persons. I think uh, some, you know, better at those kind of skills than others. But I think in the in the savant, the the uh, the memory uh, is is as impressive to me as as the skill itself, and those are connected. But I think they're two they're two uh, different processes. Um, in different areas of the brain that are uh, affected. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about savantism. One big one is that that these these they're very they're not capable of creativity or improvisation, sort of outside a very narrow structure. And you've you've uh, you've really uh, argued against that myth, right? Right. In my, in my first book, Extraordinary People, um, I wrote that. Um, Savants were um, were not very creative, and I was wrong. <laughs> and the reason that I was wrong was because I had just a, at that point just a, a, an early single snapshot of the uh, savants. But now that I've been able to follow them for a number of years, uh, what I've seen is a pattern in all of them uh, that um, uh, starts with with. Uh, a phenomenal ability to recollect, to remember, uh, whether it's remember a piece they've heard or remember a, a scene from the helicopter uh, uh, or memorize books, they have this tremendous recollection. But then um, 
if you follow them long enough, uh, they seem to get bored with their recollection and begin to improvise. Um, and uh, that's certainly true of Leslie. He will, if you play a piece for him and ask him to play it back, he will dutifully do that. But but after he's done doing that, he will start improvising on, and do variations on the theme of what he just heard and, and get a whole new concerto. Um, and then the third stage is, is, is creativity, uh, 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 producing something new. And I've seen this in artists who start with tremendous recollection, you know, uh, fiber by fiber in an animal, for example. But then they begin to uh, put a, a, a bush here that wasn't in the picture there. And you soon they're doing some free freestyle. So there is this um, a movement from uh, recollection to improvisation to uh, creativity. And um, some of it is really uh, uh, as startling as the recollection itself. Uh, uh, in other words, some of the some of the creativity. Um, Leslie, um, uh, if you <clears throat> uh, ask him to play a tune that he's never heard and may not even exist, as some people try to stump Leslie by by you know, saying uh, to play something that doesn't exist, he will he will create on the spot. He will create a song with the lyrics. Um, for that particular um, topic. Well, that is very impressive. Would you say any of these savants, though, are bona fide geniuses? Would you say any of them, like, really could go down the history books as a genius? And is that possible for a savant to be, like, a like a, like a historical genius? Yeah, yes, I think so. Um, okay, cool. And there are some, I think, that um, may be on the way to that. Um, there is a... Uh, a savant in Australia who uh, got his PhD in, in mathematics from UCLA and is um, doing some work, which I think you know may 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 push us farther along than we've ever been. Uh, interestingly, his brother, who is not autistic, won the Fields Medal in mathematics. Um, wow! And uh, but uh, and. Uh, I, I think uh, some of the uh, some of the savants that are into interested now in, in quantum physics, particularly or quantum theory, um, are I think may take us farther than we've been. Um, what makes them savants, though, as opposed to just people with high autism-like traits? What where well, is their disability? What's their disability? It is autism, and 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 uh, some of them. Uh, it depends on. I mean that um, uh, they're uh, they may have very limited uh, daily living skills. Uh, they can't uh, manage wow. their own finances. Uh, they may need some caretakers. Um, that sounds like that sounds like me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can barely manage my day. <laughs> I think um, I think Kim Peak, if he had unfortunately Kim died about two or three years ago, yeah. but uh, if if he had continued. Uh, I, I think he would have, uh, in fact, NASA was spending some time with him. And I think if there was such a thing as is such a thing as superintelligence, uh, I think uh, Kim was, uh, uh, would be a candidate. On the other hand, uh, he, he had, had to have help dressing himself. He, he couldn't brush his own teeth because of some motor skills and, and had other um, uh, problems with uh, uh, 
anxiety and so forth. So uh, his autistic uh, underpinnings were there, and that that's true of some of these others. Is that right that towards the end, as as he got older, Kim Peek started to be able to do some things that he wasn't able to do? Like there was a clear progression and development of some of these, quote, neurotypical skills, like social skills and stuff? Right. Uh, and and I, I would uh, put him on the same um, – recollection and improvisation to creation uh, spectrum because when I first met Kim, uh, uh, he had uh, memorized these this factual memory, which was, was simply astounding. Uh, but um, as, as time went on, um, uh, rather than just bringing up a fact, uh, he would he often would make a pun or some kind of a wit or some kind of a, a, a uh, on a, a uh, connection, sort of like a Google-like connection. Um, it, it originally with Kim, if you if you said uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, uh, he would give you the whole history of when it was written, first time it was played, and all that kind of thing. But uh, toward the end uh, of his life, I asked him one time, "What do you know about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony?" And he said Churchill. And I said, "I don't, Kim. I don't." I don't get it," he said. "Well, um, uh, Morse code is uh, for uh, da 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 is the letter V, and Churchill always had this letter V. Whenever you saw him, he was flashing the letter V, and so he was making a, the connection between. Uh, and uh, one time, I asked him, "What do you know about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address?" And he said, "1410 Front Street." I said, I don't get it. He said, well, that's where Lincoln stayed the night before he gave his famous uh, speech. So that was his Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Oh. Well, you know, it seems like he was like a walking hippocampus. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yes. like, it just seems like he, um, you know, his associative memory, we all have ability for associative memory, but we don't peer into that. We also like have all these other brain networks getting in the way and inhibiting it and it's almost like he was just having direct access to his hippocampus whenever he wanted. <laughs> free reign, free reign, free reign. Well, that, that's true. And many times his dad uh, was able to be a kind of an interpreter because Kim was so far ahead many times with these puns or associations that I didn't understand or even his dad didn't understand. Uh, but he was – and they were instant. I mean he would do this on – um, at speaking engagements or, or other kinds of things, he would make these these puns or these uh, witticisms that were simply jaw dropping, um, and and that's and that's when you spend time with him, that's what you got um, in terms of trying to converse with him and trying to keep up with him. Oh wow, it's so, so interesting. What you know to look at like how much the brain can impact this stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, culture and learning and environment's really important too. But in some of these specific cases, it's hard for me to wrap my head around how Kim Peek would have been different. Um, what, what what ways do you think his memory abilities would have been different under different conditions? Maybe if he wasn't nurtured as much, he wouldn't have been as good. Um, but I don't know, like, what do you, how, what do you think is the role of the, um, environment? It's not like a teacher taught him how to memorize. He doesn't do all these memory tricks, you know? Well, I, I naturally, it, 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 it's a, it's a preoccup, the preoccupation, uh, and the, it, it's, it's kind of a force as much as a gift. Uh, um, he has to, I mean, he has to read, uh, uh, Leslie Lemkley has to play the piano if he doesn't. 
he, he gets anxious and 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 um, and uh, John Sorkin uh, acquired Savon. He he has to paint, and and so uh, it's this drive that um, uh, is continually mining or you know, or digging yeah. within area, and and for some it um, it it gets to be. Um, uh, sort of in, in, insatiable. I, I remember um, a calendar calculator, George Finn, um, uh, uh, who was able, with his twin brother, were there, they were calendar calculators as well as other number specialists. And I, uh, one time, uh, uh, he lived in New York and we had a, a cable TV show somewhere in New Jersey. And so we had to travel by car from New York to wherever this was. And the, the conversation was just continually about numbers and, and, and dates. And, you know, uh, it was almost exhausting by, by the time we were there because it, yeah. uh, everything just uh, revolved around these uh, um, uh, the, these numbers and so forth. So I think um, it is um, sort of in, insatiable um, need to um, – right. To, to rehearse or to um, uh, demonstrate the ability. Several of the acquired savants, like Tommy McHugh in uh, England or, or John Sarkin in this country, um, became artists after their uh, traumatic brain injury, but they, they can't stop. I mean, they're drawing on the floor, they're drawing on the ceiling, they're drawing on, you know, they just have to keep drawing. And it's, it's this insatiable uh, kind of force. And it's, it, it's not so much a practice effect as it is um, uh, needing to, um, to discharge this, uh, the, the need to uh, draw or, or to paint or to compute. Right. So you've proposed something called like genetic memory. Um, and, and I, how do you reconcile the genetic memory idea with this idea of the acquired savant? Well, uh, the, the acquired savant, I think demonstrates, uh, genetic memory. Um, oh, okay. in that, um, these are, uh, ordinary folk who, um, have a, a, a brain injury or a stroke or some central nervous system incident and uh, become um, expert in, in art or music or math where there were was no such ability before. Tommy McHugh, for example, was a construction worker basically in London who had a rather colorful life and uh, in terms of uh, in and out of prisons and that sort of thing. And, and, um, uh, had a, a stroke from which he recovered, but but he had the the uh, became a poet. I mean, if ever there was a likely person to be a poet, it was Tommy McHugh and an artist, and he simply uh, was drawing everywhere and and anywhere, and so uh, that ability had to be uh, inside him uh, prior to the stroke. Uh, he didn't learn that. Uh, he didn't learn how to draw or to become a poet. It, it just appeared um, uh, after uh, in, in his recovery. So it had to exist. And I think that those pockets of ability uh, exist in all of us at, in, in a dormant uh, capacity. Uh, and and they, the acquired savant taps into that. And the question is, 
where did where did Tommy McHugh's uh, uh, art ability and interest and uh, come from? And um, and I I guess from my standpoint, the only way it could be there is through uh, genetic uh, memory. Uh, I, I uh, and that um, there are these pockets of dormant capacity within all of us that are transmitted genetically. And so what I'm saying is that we inherit not just the color of our eyes or how tall we're going to be or even behavioral traits. I think we actually inherit knowledge. And by that, I'm talking about the rules of music, art, or math, for example. Uh, come. Um, Another possibility is that we inherit the ability to learn the rules. We don't actually inherit the rules themselves. We kind of like where some people are, are more ex, um, prepared to um, to it's like a template or a skeleton, and they just their experience fills it in. You know. Yeah. Well, I I think that's I think that's possible, and I'm open to that. Um, the, the thing that that um, steers me away from that is the the rapidity and the the um, the epiphany-like quality that these have that that appear and they appear to me intact as opposed to to uh, rapid learning. Um, now it, it's hard to prove that or disprove that, but <laughs> right, right. But I I think uh, I know that there are many people who feel that the um, uh, what is inherited is is the scaffolding or the right. the ability to learn quickly. But I've got some cases where this just uh, appeared with such um, uh, spontaneity and, and and such intactness that it's hard to believe that the person learned that. And in some cases, for example, in math, um, they they're able to. Uh, compute prime numbers or do other kinds of uh, uh, formulas and so forth uh, without ever having been exposed to them. Now, in fact, uh, I've got some uh, autistic savants um, uh, who um, are able to, uh, now that the, we have the type, typing tablet and they can, they have been mute, but they're they're now typing on their own on this tablet mm. who are, who are uh, 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 typing out the periodic table, for example, never having seen the periodic table. Mm. That is very, that is very impressive. Um, do you think the same thing is kind of going on with um, people with talents, just neurotypical people with talents or, um, I, I guess they wouldn't be neurotypical if they have an extraordinary talent, but um, I don't know, like um, um, people with prodigies, prodigies. Do you think a lot of these things are kind of similar phenomenon? Yeah, I think the uh, I, I've been um, I get a lot of emails that um, say I've got a son or daughter who, and then the parent tells me their the, the story about the. Um, the special skill generally that they've because they've heard about savants and many times it it's it's difficult to sort out um uh savant abilities from prodigy uh from giftedness um i and agree some, and um some of these um uh, 
I think some of these children are 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 profoundly gifted. I guess I suppose you could call them a prodigy. I don't know, but uh, well, prodigy sure. officially you have to be before the age of ten. Okay, all right, um, um, but um, I think sometimes these uh, profoundly gifted children or prodigies uh, are difficult to sort out from um, autism. Now, if, if the autism symptoms are are, are severe, uh, the child is mute and withdrawn and, and obviously autistic, then, you know, it, it, it's clear that that would be a savant skill. But uh, I think the, uh, Daniel Tammet when we did a, a program together and he said that, you know, the line between genius and savant is a very thin one, a very narrow one. And I think he's right in terms of um, the um, trying to uh, tr trying to differentiate those um, in, in terms of their uh, their ability and, and skill on, on the face of it. Um, but it, it's an important distinction because um, if uh, if what uh, let's say hyperlexia, a child who reads very early, we're talking about kids at uh, twenty or twenty-two months <laughs> reading. Um, now, uh, some of those uh, sometimes the, the hyperlexia is a splinter skill. And, and, and as the picture emerges, uh, it turns out that that child is autistic, but but has uh, the hyperlexia is sort of his savant skill. But there's but there are a group of children out there who are um, hyperlexic with autistic like symptoms for a period of time, right. where the outcome is entirely good. So uh, trying to to sort those out is is a real challenge. Yeah, and as, but it's also very important, you know, I'm for gifted, talented education and our identification of kids who are falling between the cracks. Yeah, I think it's really important. Well, it is. I I uh, I got an email just yesterday from a a family where the the child is is hyperlexic and and thought to be autistic, and they the the school was insisting that this child go to a to special education, which is exactly the wrong place for this particular child. Um, unfortunately, the parents resisted that and put them into uh, a different educational system. And um, and now I, th I think the outcome is going to be it, that's a whole another area of my work is what I call hyperlexia three, which are, is uh, uh, there are three kinds of hyperlexia. One is uh, uh, normal kids, um, neurotypical, uh, ordinary kids who um, read very early. And then there's a second group where the hyperlexia is a part of their autistic splinter skill. But there's a third group called hyperlexia three, where kids have autistic-like symptoms for a period of time, which they outgrow and go on to be very bright, uh, contributing uh, normal individuals. And, uh, and the, the educational decisions that are made are crucial uh, in that group of youngsters. So what is this kid's outcome in the new school? Uh, doing uh, marvelously. Uh, oh, great, great. Um, in terms of uh, uh, growth uh, socially, uh, particularly, uh, and um, just uh, 
uh, had been uh, had a lot of trouble with uh, was reading very early, and that was very striking. The hyperlexia, but language was slowed, and uh, it now in this first months in this new school, language has has sort of erupted <laughs> um, marvelously, as as have the social skills in in the school is. But uh, the other school was actually uh, wanting this child to. Uh, uh, who was bored with math, you know, because it was a, a head of, way ahead of the curve, but they were saying, no, you have to go through these, the usual math sequence, because that's what, that's the way it is in the school. So um, it, it's, it's crucial to sort those, those out. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And um, I'm really glad that you're making these points. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, and I'm I'm very mindful of your time, you know. But this is so these talk so so fun talking to you. Do you do you mind have another fifteen oh, minutes or so? Absolutely not. Um, you know, we talked about the acquired savant. Let's talk about the sudden savant for inst- for ex- for uh, a second. Um, th- th- this individual, Jason Paget, has gained a lot of. Uh, he wrote a book recently, and so I've seen a lot of interviews. I've listened to a lot of interviews, uh, radio on uh, radio interviews with him and stuff. This guy um, got you know, his, I, I think his his head. You know, he got he got beat up, um, robbed. You know, his wallet stolen or something out of, after leaving a bar. And he, the next day, he started seeing. He said he started seeing like numbers and things. Um, do you think any of these people are just making it up? <laughs> yeah, well, um, he's not. Uh, okay. okay. I, um, because I, uh, I just spent. Uh, I had him here for a lecture um, um, two weeks ago. Okay. And, and had a chance to spend a lot of time with him, uh, and uh, he was simply um, had no interest in math uh, and. Uh, managed to um, sort of graduate from high school by substituting somebody else's work. And, you know, I mean, he simply was not an academic. He just didn't care about that. And then he ends up getting uh, mugged and and has this concussion and and begins to see these uh, strange uh, images, which he had never seen before. And somebody said, as he tried to describe them to people, uh, they said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you draw them? And so he had never done any drawing before either. And so he drew these out and they're very complicated and very precise. It may take two weeks sometimes to complete one of these images. And he was sitting somewhere having coffee or something and, and a, a professor, a physics professor came by and he said, my gosh, you know what those are, don't you? He said, no, I don't know. Well, those are fractals. Oh, and, wow. And um, and he said, you know, what's a fractal? And so then, and so he learned what a fractal is, and, and uh, has become. Uh, he did uh, go back to college then, and is taking math courses, and has become very expert. And uh, he may be one of these people that lead us a little further than we've been in terms of when you hear him talk about uh, relativity and, and explaining it and so forth and so on. So he. Um, uh, his for real. I think there are some others where there are, are questions raised as to whether um, right. a musician, for example, really didn't have any musical training in the past. I have, I think now, somewhere in the range of 70 acquired savants um, that have, have, that I've learned about, and, and they seem genuine and, and um, uh, real. You know, their stories seem uh, very genuine and real. Um, 
there was this uh, girl recently who um, <clears throat> had um, uh, was a ordinary person without any particular drawing skills um, or artistic skills, and she had a head injury, uh, rather mild actually, but then began to do these pencil sketches, and she sent them to me, and they're simply striking. They're simply stunning, uh, and uh, she never done any of that um, kind of thing before. So uh, now, um, the, uh, what I'm what I'm trying to, uh, in in terms of the acquired savant, um, some of these um, acquire a new skill, <clears throat> but pay a price for it in terms of cognitive ability or memory or other kinds of a trade-off of some sort. But I'm seeing more acquired savants now where there doesn't seem to be a trade-off. And I would, right. I, I would, I would put um, a Jason into, into that category. Um, and, um, and then I get other um, emails from people who, um, have not necessarily had a, a, an injury, but have a, an epiphany of talent that just arrives on the scene, um, and they suddenly become expert in something or not expert. That's the sudden spawn. These are people who, um, where there has been no no central nervous system incident, and and uh, suddenly they are artists or poets or whatever, and and uh, that that's even more more unusual, but uh, I'm, I'm seeing uh, some of those cases now. And um, uh, uh, I got one, uh, an email a couple of days ago from a, a young woman who uh, <clears throat> had never, I mean, she was an average student. Um, and she was, I think, in junior high school and just, uh, uh, woke up at one point uh, one day and and sudden had this this sudden urge and preoccupation with math that she had no interest in before and now she's you know excelling in uh, uh, in that in that area um, uh, why you know why that happened and on that particular day or what I don't know but that's those are the sudden savants. Is there? So if there is, as you've said, a little rain man in all of us, then, you know, what can we, what can like, you know, the average Joe, Joe do um, without, you know, hitting their head against, uh, you know, a concrete wall or, you know, to change their brain or, you know, um, I mean, I know there's new tech, like um, uh, there's re researchers um, doing like T, you know, to doing like transcranial stimulation, you know, right. trying to do that and stuff like that. Um, what else can people do? Well, I think uh, there's all sorts of effort to make sir, make ourselves smarter. Um, uh, and um, like coffee, for yeah, instance. Exactly. Well, that, as a matter of fact, is is uh, you know the pharmacologic route, um, and the people are, have been experimenting for. Um, uh, and coffee is a good example. It does work uh, in in the short run, um, and there are other. Uh, uh, chemicals out there now which will improve memory in the short run uh, or at least make you feel like you're smarter whether or not you're actually smarter is a different story yeah well yeah I, well uh, it'll, it'll certainly it, it, it will uh, 
impact demonstrably on memory capacity, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah. The amphetamines um, will, um, you know, make you make your memory improve your memory in the in the, and you can demonstrate that on tests but it's it's not a lasting effect so there's a pharmacologic route and of course uh anything uh, if you watch any television now no matter what what it is there's all of the metabolic products out there the jellyfish that makes our the, the that makes our brains uh better and, and work better so there's this perpetual search for something <clears throat> a pharmacologic there's the technologic uh, you mentioned the the uh, uh, RTMS <clears throat> um, there is in fact uh, dr. Alan Snyder in Australia has been working with with that in, in a very systematic kind of way but there is if you if you google it now you can buy these headsets that uh, are available uh, to um, uh, commercially to to put on your head and, and stimulate your um, cortex and supposedly um, help. Um, so there's that technological route. There's the pharmacologic route. Uh, there is the uh, uh, meditation and, and mindfulness route that um, sort of a, a taking a deliberate cognitive approach <clears throat> to expanding your mind or memory. Um, I, I think the, the less dramatic <clears throat> route is simply to uh, make some effort to sort of what I call rummage in our right hemisphere a bit yeah. and, and find uh, a skill or capacity or interest that, that, that one can, can pursue, uh, not necessarily just as a hobby or in your retirement, but, but uh, to, to um, find out. A lot of people do find that out after they retire. They they, they have an ability or, or they have a something they've always wanted to pursue and now have the time to do so. And I'm saying we should get started earlier on that. Uh, to and that's a different. It's not a very dramatic kind of mind expansion, but I think it's the kind that works. Can can you become really good at something without any talent to begin with? Like can't doesn't practice like matter as well? Well, I think practice matters, uh, and um, it matters even in the savants that um, uh, the thing that um, with, with the savants, the musical savants, for example, as they, <clears throat> they, they, they train the talent and they get better by doing that. And, and so the fact that they can, that you can uh, train it or develop it doesn't necessarily um, obviate the fact that it, it, it in, in the savant is, is just there and sometimes uh, there in a way that they haven't been exposed to. Uh, and uh, that so uh, there's no question that practice effect can improve the, the, the skill, uh, but that doesn't negate the fact that savants know things they never learned. And that's another, you know, that that's that's another whole area of course as you know some you know people argue for the the ten thousand hour a practice effect and you know give me a child and give me a bright child or just give me a child who is and the only thing he or she has to do is is to learn music 
and concentrate only on that. And I will, you know, at the end of it, have a, a prodigy or genius. And I'm saying, no, I think there is a, a substrate of talent that's distributed in the bell-shaped curve that uh, we're not all going to be little Michelangelo's or, or um, uh, Einstein's, but uh, at, at the extremes, there is this uh, talent uh, and, and, I, I, and I'm adding to talent knowledge of the rules of that particular talent that I think are inherent in. So such an interesting conversation for me, and I really appreciate it. I want to end a little bit talking about your theory of mellow. Um, how can we all be more mellow? And, um, and what are some you know, other side interests or hobbies or things that, that most excite you today? Right. Well, of course, mellowing um, comes from listening to patients um, uh, through the years. And, and obviously, if you listen to, uh, like any doctor in any specialty, uh, toward the end of your career, you get more and more interested in prevention rather than treatment. You know, you, all along, one wonders about how can you keep this from happening. But I think and uh, the longer one is in a career, the more <clears throat> intrigued one gets with uh, how can we keep this from happening. So I listened to patients for all these years and uh, uh, learned certain things from them, um, uh, from listening to them. Uh, and I, I just put those together in a, in a formula or, or a booklet or whatever you want to call it called mellowing. For example, uh, uh, being able to... Uh, uh, well, first of all, my definition of uh, mental health is being relaxed, at ease, and pleasantly convivial. And that's what mellow means, relaxed, at ease, and pleasantly convivial. And how, do, how does one become that? Um, well, there are things you can do, for example, to focus more on on uh, who I am rather than what I do, and not all of my identity, you know, wrapped up in what I do rather than, than who I am, uh, sorting out what I call the urgent from the important, that we spend so much of our times with urgent things in our life, and, and we ignore the, the important things like love and, 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 and um, um, care and concern and interaction with each other. Um, we. Uh, um, priorities, we get our priorities uh, mixed up and, um, and a variety of other kinds of things that, that are really common sense, but, but we, we don't, you know, we, we don't pay much attention to our health until it's interrupted. Then suddenly it's like we don't pay much attention to sleep until we can't sleep well. And, and once your health is interrupted, then I... Especially with mental health, there are things one can uh, can look at. So I've put those together in a little formula, I guess, that um, make us more able to be relaxed, at ease, and pleasantly convivial. And, and a part of it's just getting off the treadmill that that um, uh, that we that we in, that we end up on. Some of which is necessary and, and uh, um, but but a lot of it uh, we I think are things that um, that we learn later on were not all that important this is really great Daryl um, and you know I, I feel like you've I've gotten a lot of wisdom from you 
in lots of different ways. I mean, looking back, you know, your whole, your very long career, um, you know, what is like, what is like a major, like, what has given you the greatest sense of like meaning in your life? Is, has it been interacting with these savants, getting to really know them as people, as opposed to just doing scientific research? You know, what is it? What are some, what, what are really some of the most meaningful highlights of your career? I think the, the, the highlight has been not so much what what I might have discovered or or insights that I've had, but it's the <clears throat> the effect that some of those insights or interactions have had on people and their lives, not only the savants but their families as well. And um, the real compensation that I get at this point in my career is uh, the from the the letters from parents or from I got a uh, a long email the other day from a girl who was uh, now uh, 21 years old, and she was uh, hyperlexic, given a diagnosis mistakenly of autism, and and treated in some ways that really was not. Anyway, she she wrote me this letter of of what it's like to have gone through that, in the hopes that that I could share that with other youngsters or, or parents. Uh, the uh, uh, the thing that uh, the knowledge that uh, that I've been helpful to people. It, it's one thing to do your job well and and take satisfaction in doing a good job, but the real satisfaction comes from knowing that that effort is appreciated. And so you get, um, I think, at at the end of a. Um, I know Dr. Walter Kempster was was the superintendent of Winnebago a century before I was. When he retired, his his uh, staff gave him a, a bunch of books, the library books, which in those days were very valuable. And he said, "I really, I really, I'm glad to get these books, and that I, I will treasure them." But he said that more important than knowing that I did the job well is that. The knowledge that my efforts were appreciated, and I think that's true of all of us. And so, my satisfaction comes from, um, the, and, and it's in, in small ways. I um, every now and then will go out and, and meet with a high school class of um, the, the advanced psychology students or whatever. I go to a little village near here called Oakfield once a year, and, and we get together and I do this lecture and. and each year they send me back a card signed by all of these kids, you know, how appreciative they were. And, and for some, they will say it, it, it's a, been a meaningful, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about I want to be a psychiatrist or I want to be a psychologist or I, I want to be a neuroscientist. And um, I have a couple of um, kids out there now who are about to graduate from medical school and they wrote to me and said, the reason that I'm in medical school is because of this lecture that you gave that I said I wanted to um, attend. And so it, it's that kind of feedback that, you know, that it's not monetary, um, but it is the, the appreciation and knowing that you've had a, a really positive impact on these. And the appreciation letters from these parents especially are, are just uh, really, really moving. <laughs> 
I, you know, I, I know for a fact a lot of people really appreciate you. I, I really appreciate you. And, and I've seen videos. I've seen you interact with these savants, many of these individuals who there's, there's hardly anyone else in their life who really appreciate them, their uniqueness. And you kind of bring out of them. I've seen you bring out of them this kind of special, um, you know, the expression of themselves that a lot of people haven't been able to coax out of them. So I think you've really done a great, great service. Oh, thank you. I I think, you know, I when I started the children's unit <clears throat> at Winnebago, um, we had these really disturbed kids on, on uh, and, uh, and we started this unit and we started a school and there weren't any models out there so we had to we had to create our own and my my motto or I guess my strategy was that look no matter how disturbed this child is and how how close they are somewhere in there is an island of intactness uh, and that's true of every psychotic patient or every depressed patient too no matter how depressed you know there is this island of intactness and our job is to find that island of intactness and to build on it you know to to to, to um, nurture it and, and to make it grow and so it is with the savants that that within them uh it's easy with some of them there's this island of genius that you know that strikes but even with some of the other kids that are really severely or some of the psychotic patients that i've uh, treated um i i search for that island of intactness uh, or even with some of the, the behavioral kids the kids that are you know, acting out and so forth you're still so i guess i have that that if there's a sort of an urge within me uh, it, it's to search for that island of intactness and no matter how how, how disturbed the person is um i love that i love and, that and, and sometimes um you, you know, you learn, you learn from your patients, and that's what um, this uh, mellowing booklet is all about. Things that I've learned, and some some of the things are are very uh, obvious. I, I um, when I first became superintendent of the hospital, I put out a suggestion box, and I said to the patients, you know, I go home every night. You stay here. What can we do to make this a better place? And one guy put a suggestion. He said, "Don't serve beans on dance night." And I thought <laughs> <laughs> it's very practical <laughs> and easy to implement. Easy to implement. So if you listen, you know, you hear things that that you learn. You are the savant whisperer. <laughs> um, it, uh, last question um, you know what are you most excited about in the future you know it could be recent advances in technology can you be you personally in your own personal life I think um, the, uh, the, the neuroscience frontier uh, is uh, I think we're you know we we have barely scratched the surface of, of the brain and, and it's and it's complexity one of the, the more I've worked with it the more in awe i am of this three and a half pounds of um circuitry uh, and what it can do and and how little we're we really have been able to uh to unravel about that and i and, but i think we're now have some technology and techniques um not all imaging but some other kinds of things as well that that will allow us to um you know my um hope is that, that some of the things that I've been talking about, including the, 
the, the, the genetic memory kind of thing will be able to, somebody will be able to, to pick up and, and, and to prove. So that's what I'm um, uh, looking, looking forward to and, and seeing some of these. Um, I, I, I gave a, uh, recently I gave a, a, a lecture to a, a, a bunch of fourth graders in an in a elementary school. They asked me to come and I thought, geez, I know how to talk to adults and I, you know, graduate students will say to fourth graders. And so I went there and we had, we just had a blast. Uh, those kids were, were prepared for, obviously the teacher had prepared them. I said, Dr. Trevor, how come there are more male savants than female savants? I mean, these are fourth graders, you know, raising that kind of a question. And at the end of it, um, a little guy and a little girl came up and, and the guy said to me, he said, I want to be a neuroscientist when I grow up. And the little girl said, me too. And and for me, the real payoff would be the day they walk across the stage and get their master's degree in neuroscience and their doctorate and carry on the work that I've sort of started or have been immersed in. And I, that, you know, that to me is, uh, that's where I drawing my satisfaction. I also, um, uh, I've got a huge orchard, which I take care of, which I, it, it's in full bloom right at the moment. And it's just, you know, marvelous. And so I spent a lot of time um, on, on our property. We've got a, a beautiful waterfall on our property too. And so I can, you know, soak that up just as much as genetic memory. <laughs> Please take a picture of, 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 of them in bloom and I can put it in the show notes. Okay. Picture I, you take. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Thank you, Dowd. I I just have really treasure this conversation and and getting uh, all the conversations we've had. Well, I appreciate the chance to talk with you and get to know you a bit better and uh, electronically at least. At some point, I hope our paths will cross, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing, and you keep doing what you're doing, and between the two of us, we'll move things ahead a little bit more. <laughs> Sounds great, Daryl. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next season for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.